Welcome to Change the Narrative. I'm your host, J.D. Fuller, an African-American, licensed psychotherapist, professor, diversity coach, consultant, and author. We talk about the isms. We talk about the phobias, anything that marginalizes and oppresses. Everything we are not and everything we are is because of fear. Through a mental health lens, we'll have difficult conversations with celebrity guests, political activists, and everyone in between. Our mind will tell us whatever we want to believe, but the truth lives in the body, and that's where change occurs. Are you ready to change the narrative? Welcome, Pallavi. So happy to have you with us today on Change the Narrative. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. So I want you to talk a little bit about your background and just an idea of where you come from and a couple of key lessons that you've learned along the way. Okay, my background. So I grew up in the Bay Area in California. Mm -hmm. And when I was a teenager, I got into a lot of trouble. And <laughs> we like this. Um, I, I got into trouble. I was talking back, I was doing some things my parents didn't want me to do. And we're an Indian American family. So, you know, we always get in our culture, we get threatened with getting sent back to the motherland. It actually happened to me when I was 14. <laughs> we, wow. We went to India on summer vacation and I did not come back for two years. Wait a minute, um, wait a minute, wait a minute, follow me. We got to take this slow. Wait a minute. You mean, so the threat is that you're going to go back to India and you actually went and they, what did they say? They were like, okay, so we're going and you're not like, what did that sound like? Well, my older brother was still going to high school here. He was going into his junior year of high school and I was, no, sorry, his senior year. And I was, I had just come out of my freshman year of high school. And so it was summer vacation. So my dad needed to stay back uh, with him so he could finish out his school year. And my mom was going to stay with me in India with our family. And in, in India, when you when we visited, um, everyone kind of lives together. So I actually, it was like a really loving, large, you know, home that I could really bond with my cousins. And I didn't initially want to live there. But I think when I, I stopped, when I stopped trying to leave, I just started to try to like, make my life feel better. Um, things started to shift for me. And I think a storyteller was born while I lived there. And I started out just doing some writings and I got published in a, like a local journal there in the village I lived in. I'm just kind of trying to make sense of the world around me. And then when I came back, after I was reformed, <laughs> supposedly, <laughs> I, I wanted to continue writing. And so I, when I went to undergrad, I studied creative writing and journalism and left college, worked for a community newspaper in the Bay Area and then moved to New York, wanted to be a writer there, but somehow ended up at an ad agency. And yet storytelling kind of felt like a through line, even at the ad agency. I was in the research uh, department and we would get to research our target audiences and show brands and companies that we understood their customer base. And so we would get to go spend time with people. And that's actually how I got into filmmaking because they would want to have some of those research investigations filmed. So this sounds really superficial, but we would, for Revlon, for example, we would go shopping with the customers and then film some of that and then like film some of their excitement and then, and, and stuff like that. Or for, if it was like a pharmaceutical, then we would kind of sit with them and learn more about the impact of the medicine on their mm -hmm. body. So that's how I got into filmmaking. I was just a research person and a writer, but I, I made friends with the AV guys and then sat in the edit suite and like kind of became a producer there and learned some editing there. And then I think 
So I was living in New York for about four years and the work started to feel a little too, I just needed more meaning in my life. And I, even though it was like, it was technically nonfiction because we were, you know, it was research, so it was real. But I think actually I was working on a drug. I don't know how much I should say. I was working on a drug that, that was in the news for hurting people, people, killing people, let's just say it. Um, and I was, you know, we had gone and we created this documentary, a mini doc for the phar pharmaceutical sales reps to make them feel better about working on the drug. And because they didn't want it, they didn't want to sell it anymore. And so that was, that was my breaking point of like, I don't want to be doing this anymore. This is not the right thing to do. I want to make a better impact on the world. I want to work in, in true documentary. And so being in debt, of course, living in New York, I just decided, okay, I'm going to come home and crash with my parents back in the Bay Area and figure it out. So that's, that was how I got into documentary. And I think like some people have some really great stories about how they got into, into that. And I have like, oh, I entered through the corporate world. But I, I disagree that my mouth's over here dropping and I'm trying not to talk while you're telling the story. This is so interesting. I think it is fascinating. I love a good backstory. That's why I always start with how did you get here? And that's such an interesting backstory. You know, people get angry at their country of origin and their families of origin because they uphold this structure of what they believe in. And you know, I don't have an immigrant story as an African-American, so I'm very fascinated by how people communicate their roots to their children. Your parents made it very clear. We're going back to instilling you something that we see you losing here. Is that fair to say? I mean, I think so. I think there's something about immigrants that come to this country and they can, for some of them, they can be like their values are kind of frozen in time. Mm. And so like the country they left behind might be even progressing, but they, they're, mm. they're holding on to their values. And so, so I think there was a little of that. I think also like I wasn't hanging around with some good people and I didn't even know it. I think I, I learned some stuff later, years later, um, the boyfriend that I was dating, they thought that he was, dealing drugs. And I, I found out in my late 20s that he was. <laughs> it was like, you chickas, like you should have told me because I probably would have broken up with you and never got sent to India. Because I think like, I think I was like in over my head and like, I was like an innocent person hanging out with some people and doing things and like not really realizing how that could change my future. Yeah. No, that um, makes sense. So I think, yeah, I mean, I think I wasn't like the bad kid that my parents might have thought right. I was, but I don't blame them for what they did. And to be honest, I'm really loving my life now. And like, I just, you know, like you can't change anything about your past because like, would I have my kids? Would I have my partner? Would I have this life? I don't know. So. There's two things that you said that I think are really important for me. It's like it resonates is, and I hear it frequently in the immigrant culture which is that hanging on to old values and how kids born into that culture have resentment for it because it's like, we need you to progress with the time. And I always, you know, when I'm working with a client, I try to help them understand how, while I can imagine, you know, great compassion for how that must be quite a conflict, 
I also feel something positive about the parent who knows that they had to sell out something to come here and provide opportunity for you. And they don't want you to lose what helped them get here. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. Yes. And then the other thing is that, you know, when you stop fighting it, when you stop fighting being in India, you got what you needed. That to me is everything. That's really powerful. Yeah, thank you. I think the experience was, it's just, it's stuck with me for life. And I think I'm, as a storyteller, I want to keep revisiting it. So I'm thinking about a narrative feature in my future that kind of explores, yeah, some of what I went through, but inspired by true events. Yeah, I love that. Okay, let's, I'm going to start off with your most recent project, but I want to use a different format today, which is basically, I'm going to, I want to get through as many of your projects as we can at the time we have available. And I want you to answer three things, basically, just briefly what it's about, why did you do it, and what did you learn from it? Okay, let's start with Coach Emily. Would you talk about that a little bit? Sure. And I might ask you to repeat the question. Yeah, um, I'm a, a very visual person when I see I it. I am I. Yeah. So Coach Emily is, it's a working title for a feature documentary about Emily Taylor and her Brown Girls climbing team. And Emily is a rock climbing coach, 30 years in the climbing industry doing this work. She's a Black woman. She's queer. She's a daughter. She's a mother. And she created Brown Girls Climbing for young Black and Brown girls and non-binary kids for her daughter uh, when she was growing up and, you know, wanted to hang out with friends. And they started going to the climbing gym. She would like play dates and it became a thing. It became this structured, beautiful vessel to support these kids um, in climbing and adventuring and just life. And so I, I started filming in 2019. I reached out to Emily. I, there, I, early in that year, I reached out to her. I had seen this news story. It was about a five minute video and it was a be- beautifully done five minute video that was published in January of 2019 around Dr. MLK Jr.'s, um, just around the holiday. Um, and in, yeah, I was celebrating Emily and the work that she was doing. And I just thought like, wow, like I'm, you know, I've climbed, but I've never progressed past emerging because I don't have support. And it feels kind of alienating to me personally, uh, just being in a space where not too many people look like me mm-hmm. um, and where I don't have, I guess I need, I feel like I need a little more of my hands held and have some more support. So when I saw that, I was like, I want to know her. I wish she was my coach. I want to film her. Let me just throw an email and see what happens. And she said she was open. She, you know, we met, we met up one day in the afternoon. I was on maternity leave with my second child. And so I brought him and she immediately like grabbed him and he was very (laughs) attached to me. He was 10 months old at the time, but like, she's some kind of baby whisperer and she just held him for an hour and a half. And he was like, I have a picture from that day where he's just like looking up at her and cooing. And I'm just like, what is going on here? And I was so relieved. I was like, wow, this is great. Like, I, I think I'm, we had decided for my second child that I would take a year off because for my first, I had jumped into grad school after three months. And so I wanted that time. But then at 10 months in that first meeting with Emily, I was like, okay, I'm ready to jump back in. Like, I can, I can let go. And like, there are people that can be as loving to him as I am. Um, You know, you are a natural storyteller, first of all, just the way you put pieces together and just, you know, I feel them and I I love that. That's good storytelling. 
What did you learn from this project? Because I'll tell you, in the small trailer I saw, I was in tears and just thought, so amazing for what these kids have an opportunity to have with Coach Emily, but also, man, if I had something like that, like you, you know, I would have really explored climbing because I love it and just don't have the body parts these days to do it. But what did you learn from it? I think for me, so Emily's coaching model is really holistic. She's looking at at the girls and the kids for everything that they are, for every like for all the parts of them that make them who they are. And they can show up and feel whatever they're feeling. And she shows up and expresses, you know, similar things. There's no pretense. There's no like and it's not like harsh coaching of um, you know, it's not aggressive coaching of like do this or else. It's really like, let's all come and be who we are and be accepted for that. And then she figures out ways, ways to kind of like turn, turn up the notch a little bit to help support them to be who they are. And so I think for me, I mean, I think like, I hope with this documentary that everyone kind of feels, gets to experience what it's like to be coached by Emily, because I've felt it too and so like for me personally it's like it's very inspiring to see her impact on the kids her impact on her daughter and just making moves in the climbing industry and then for me it's like I'm just starting to feel a little more comfortable voicing myself like voicing who I am and what I'm about what my needs are and so She's very assertive about her boundaries and her needs, and she's teaching the kids to do the same. So they're, you know, during class, they're just taking care of themselves, and then they're also learning. And I think for me as a person that's a filmmaker and a working parent, a mother and a wife and a daughter and just, and all of these things, like, I just feel like sometimes certain parts of us get neglected and... In being in her orbit, it's a great reminder to to nurture those parts of ourselves that that need things. Yeah. Yeah, no, I definitely felt that. And exactly what you said about feeling feeling like you're being coached at the same time, which is really powerful. All right, I want to get to a couple of others if we can. Sure. And then we'll talk about where everybody can find all of these. The other one is... I'm trying to decide which one. Okay, Escaping Agra. Can I say that correctly? Mm-hmm. Will you talk about that a bit? Sure. So with Escaping Agra, it's it's following a transgender teen, but adult, year old uh, Naveen, who was also sent to India <laughs> and held against their will. They Their parents found out about their gender and sexual orientation during their first year of college and took them to India on a trip to care for their ill grandmother and then kept them there in Agra in their family home. And Naveen needed to enroll in college there, was just living life there, but trapped. No passport, no documents, no way to get home. They were a student here where I live in California at UC Davis at the time. And so... Yeah, it was a very extreme and traumatizing and kind of awful 
version of what I experienced. Yeah. I didn't have to deal with homophobia, transphobia. Like I was a child. It was my parents' right to send me there. Naveen was an adult. And so when I, when I found out about it, they had published a YouTube video. We're trying to get home. At the time I was, I was attending the UC Berkeley J school as a documentary student. And I reached out to see if I could find ways to support them. And I also was like, just threw a note in of, by the way, if you'd like to be filmed, I'd love to tell your story. And I was actually, for my thesis doc, I was working, I was workshopping another idea about doulas and Yeah, I'm getting pregnancy. it out. Oh, okay. Pregnancy and postpartum care for incarcerated people. And so Naveen wrote back to me and said, listen, I'm back in Davis. They're, they're, they, there was a court case that they had filed, um, that activists filed on their behalf. They won the case. Transgender rights in India, it's there. It's, um, there was a Supreme Court decision a few years ago that kind of affirmed rights for transgender people. And based on that decision, um, the Delhi High Court ruled in Naveen's favor, asked Naveen's parents to send, you know, fund their flight back home. They got their documents and they were back in Davis when Naveen wrote back to me and said, actually, yeah, sure. I'd like to be filmed. So it was kind of, I went up there, we had some coffee. The film bloomed from there, but it was about like Naveen picking up the pieces of their life, moving forward without family, with a new family, really like chosen family. And then piecing together the history through looking at the archival records, looking at, I went back to India and interviewed some people there. Although the judge in, the, in Naveen's case wouldn't speak to me, um, Someone from the Supreme Court did. So I did get someone on the record to at least speak about that, that case that, that changed, I guess, history for trans people in India. Wow, um, that is something. Man, how did you even know this was happening? Did you say that? I didn't, but I'm, I was on a mailing list for South Asian activists in the Bay Area. And Naveen's YouTube video got circled, circulated you, on okay. that mailing list. I saw that reached out. I think I found them on Facebook because I don't, there wasn't an email there and they wrote back on Facebook and we kind of connected, we connected from there. So it's a, a 23 minute short documentary. It's available um, to watch, I think to rent online. And I'm also, I've been trying to get professors and universities to look at it to see yeah. if they could, you know, screen it in the classroom. There could be, you know, discussions about it. I'm still hopeful. And I really want to find ways for parent groups, parents of queer people to to watch it as well. Because when you watch the film, I think you're you're really faced with the impact of, you know, how you parent your queer child. You can be, it could be really devastating the things that you do on their psyche. And so, or it could be really affirming and supportive. And so like in the film, you see Naveen interacting with, their partner's family and kind of experiencing for the first time some unconditional love. And that's, so I think you see both, you see both sides of that. And so I, yeah, I'm hoping to still, I still send it out. <laughs> Great. Um, as as well you should. It's a really well done. And again, another story that's felt. So please continue to send it out. All right. I want to get a couple of more in because they really are just, I don't know, your choice in topics is really something people can feel. So I want to get a couple of them in here. So this one is the Asian American Stories of Resilience and Beyond. 
experiences in, in a critical in this critical moment. There were phrases in there of people in the doc that were just so they clicked so much with me, and it, and I really appreciate the choice to honor resilience while not idolizing or idealizing the struggle. That was so important. It's such a key note that we don't get hung up on the resilience factor and that, you know, we keep in mind that refugees and immigrants, they're the bearers of historical trauma. I thought that also was just so poignant in how that was depicted. Can you talk about how and, well, basically what it's about and then why, why you chose this? It makes sense to me, but I want to know your why. Sure. So I want, I, I cannot take too much credit for this amazing series. It was definitely a group effort, but I was the lead series producer for Asian American Stories of Resilience and Beyond. It was a co-production between Asian American Documentary Network and World Channel, and which is based out of VH in Boston, okay. um, so public television, and also Center for Asian American Media. And the series it was conceived by folks at ADOC. They had actually done a series in 2020 around um, stories around coronavirus and um, trying to change the way that people see Asian Americans and kind of challenging misrepresentations of the way that, you know, there was a lot of stuff in, in media at the time. And so supporting stories about us, by us and for us was kind of that was kind of the root of that. And then so in 2021, we kind of got together and regrouped and we're like, where are we now? It's not like it's not the early onset of the pandemic, but we're still kind of in the thick of it. I mean, some people were getting vaccinated, um, but there was still a lot of grief and struggle and but also, you know, solidarity and joy and hope and resilience. And that's kind of where the theme came from. And so ADOC, along with World and Canvade, they put out a call for 10-minute uh, shorts, and we ended up with this series, this beautiful series of seven films, seven Asian-American filmmakers really telling us those stories in their own way and like in very unique pockets of the country. And I don't know, it was like such, it was such an honor and privilege to be part of the series producing team and kind of shepherding those those films to fruition and kind of supporting filmmakers. And I think what we were hoping with that, at least on, on ADOC's side, we were really focused on the production of the film and World Channel being the station or the out of GBH, the station, um, they were handling distribution. And so, but so like for production, I got to just like check in with filmmakers and see where they're at and what do they need. And, um, you know, a lot of opportunities for filmmakers lately are like you just hand people money and then that's kind of it. Um, but like, what, you know, what do you do with it? And I, I think I see a future in myself of wanting to support filmmakers more holistically. I'm coming back to. Please be sure to like, subscribe and follow wherever you get your podcasts. And also leave us a review. Let us know what you think. Thank you for listening to Change the Narrative with J.D. Fuller. Emily's coaching model um, of holistic care, because I think we need more than just like, we just need more than the finances. We need support of like, you know, how do we do this? And there's just so many needs that pop up in the moment. And so to have someone to talk to about it, I think I really loved being one of those people. And so, but um, I give a lot of props 
to the whole team, the series producing yeah. team. And then I also, I'm just really grateful to have connected with ADOC to, to be given that opportunity. And so I'm actually working on their next series, which is going to come out in 2024. Um, and also a partnership with World Channel and going to get to work with filmmakers again. And we have a, a wonderful team. But for Asian American Stories of Resilience and Beyond, I, I should probably, I think I've put it on my website. I should, all of the films are out there for everyone to, to watch on YouTube. So, Well, we're going to say that again at the end. Okay. You know, I... What you describe is, uh, in this collaboration, is what our cultures from the global majority are. We're collective. And so it's a natural response for you to just find your way in there and find your part of how to make this happen. And I appreciate that it was done. Again, another project that was very personal because people went through things that They'll never get a chance to tell the story. And that community went through something in particular where others get to have that reality validated because it was a painful time in so many different ways. So thank you. Okay, another one. I, I'm not sure what your part in it, what part you played in this, but um, it was on your website. So I grabbed it. And this one, I call it Everyone Deserves a Doula. And I added my own little piece to doula or not to doula. That is the question. <laughs> And it's because birth rates are so poor in the global majority. Talk about that. Sure. So Roots of Labor Birth Collective is a collective of doulas of color here in the Bay Area. Uh, many here in the East Bay, many here in Oakland where I am. Um, and we are specifically gathered to, I say we, because I have to tell you, I became a doula and joined the collective. Oh, so that's <laughs> I just realized I should explain why I'm saying we. <laughs> I, you know, I think just having experienced birthing my son in 2014 and part of it felt like a traumatic experience at the same time. I had a lot of support, even though OB was my family friend and um, it was a hospital birth. And um, there's a lot of, you know, like encouraged or forced interventions and I had a doula and I had my husband and, and family to support me, but not everyone has someone to kind of translate um, when, they're giving birth, when they're giving birth to, you know, advocate for their needs. And so a doula is someone that is supporting a birthing person, you know, emotionally, physically, they might, you know, they might need something physically while they're dealing with contractions or whatever, and, and spiritually. So in whatever way that someone might need support and they can't get it from their community or their family, um, a doula could come in and be that person. And, you know, they're not a medical professional, but they can be there to advocate on behalf of the birthing parent with the doctors or with the nurses or to get them what they need. And I, I don't have any exact numbers, but I do know that I think, you know, like when you have that kind of support, your chances of survival and survival for the babies are much higher. And so I reached out to Roots of Labor in, I think, 2016 or 2017. I was interested in that thesis doc that I had abandoned. I was interested in revisiting it. And I wanted to, I was looking at doulas who work in jails and I was looking at, you know, incarcerated people who give birth in jail and then they get to keep their baby with them at least for up to a year. And so I was looking at both of those and kind of had documentary ideas percolating. When I got in touch with Roots of Labor, they invited me to a doula training and I attended it. I got my certificate. 
Um, the deal was I wanted to get inside Santa Rita jail and you couldn't do that without being a doula. And I wasn't going to fake it. So I was just like, I'm going to, I'm going to go to this training. <laughs> I'm going to, I'm going to get certified. And then I'm just going to go witness the doulas, the recently rebirth collective doulas going inside to support birthing parents. And then what happened was sometimes it was like Mondays, Monday afternoon, sometimes the plans, you know, the doulas that were coming in, their plans would change. And then I was left alone. And so, I mean, I, so I just went in and then I just supported them because I was equipped with the tools to do it. And I had the knowledge. I had the binder of the info. I had like, I'm a person. I can listen. I can empathize. I can like, so I just started doing that. And in the process of doing that, for me, it just felt like something like a calling almost. And so it's not, you know, it's not my main bread and butter or anything, but like, I just, I didn't want to stop doing it. And I also, in the process of connecting with people, so some of the people that inside that we were connecting with, they wanted to become doulas on the outside once they got outside. And so, so I thought like, oh, there's a documentary idea there. But I guess I just like in the process of connecting with people, I was like, I started to feel like the idea of doing the documentary was like I could never get complete consent. I, it just didn't feel right to me. I didn't want to do it anymore. I just thought it just felt unethical. And okay. I'm in there to support someone mm -hmm. and to then try to say something to potentially coerce them to be in a documentary when to me, full consent cannot be given. Uh, it felt like the wrong thing to do. Wow. So I, you know, I, I produced and uh, no, I, I'm sorry. I, sh I did the camera and I edited the documentary that you see on my website, the short okay. documentary that was a campaign for them. It's called everyone deserves doula. And they were just fundraising so that they could pay doulas to support people in the community and to support some of the work that happens at Santa Rita Jail. But I think, you know, COVID kind of shuttered that program for a while, yeah. but we're gearing to go back in, gearing up to go back in. And so I've got my insurance. Alameda County has some requirements for us. I'm about to go back in and, and it's not for a documentary and it's not for storytelling. It's just to be there and... Yeah, I mean, I think the collective is definitely, if people want to watch that and support them, they're doing so much good. Um, and the, yeah, the jail program is, I think, a worthy one to support. You know, it's hard to believe that this won't turn into a story, even if it's not that one in particular. I could see how you could tell the stories of people because there are people who need this advocacy. And I don't think, you know, people's out, people outside of the community actually know just how much that's true. So I appreciate that. Okay, let's do, let's see, we have more time. Let's do a couple more. Gifting gold, breast milk donors. I was all over the place. I was like, oh my gosh. You're really digging in the past. There's so much here though. It's so representative of what you're made of. Talk about that a little bit. Okay, so 2014, my son Kush was born. I was not able to provide all the milk that I thought he needed. Okay. So, and I took it really personally. Well, society tells you to. Uh-huh. Especially, yeah, especially in the Bay Area, they're like, it's like, oh, like, <laughs> breast is best. And 
Oh, I don't know. Wow. There's a lot of pressure. And I think, yeah, I think we wanted to get him. Actually, I say we, but like my husband was really easygoing. He was like just so supportive. I mean, I think, and I, I wanted to get him to a year on breast milk and I couldn't make it that far. And I was like pumping and it was like ugly and like there's just all, mm -hmm. you know the infections and the things that happen when it's just mm -hmm. like pumping. Wow. Just, it's a lot and so i we found a donor we found actually like a a donor that had milk to give on a regular basis and uh, yeah i think the experience for me was like i don't know i think it's such a it's such an Pumping is so awful. <laughs> the experience of it. Like, so for someone to do that, just to do it for someone else's baby, it was like just life giving. And, you know, we had that kind of relationship for six months. And then by the end of it, she had to move. And then Kush was turning one. And I brought him to the last meeting. And I was like, I just want to show you his thighs because, like, look at his thick, chubby mm. thighs. And, <laughs> So then we both cried and I saw her baby too. And it was just like, it was such a meaningful like exchange. And yeah, I think it just stuck with me. And I just, I wanted to do something like that. So I found, I put in a call and I found, I found actually two families that were doing this. And so I filmed two of them, but I could only fit one into this particular story. But it's just such a beautiful thing for someone to do that for someone else. And, you know, for my second, actually, I didn't have issues, but then I was also like, I'm going to do formula and I don't care. It's just, it was a lot, you know, lit, less pressure because you're just like, but somehow he just, it actually worked and I didn't even have to pump. And then he was like super tied to me. So we didn't have to do that much formula, but I think, yeah, I wish, I mean, so it is this beautiful thing and I, I love that I captured it sure. moment in the short mini doc, but I also want people to just, you know, ease up on themselves. Absolutely. Absolutely. I, thank you so much for sharing that. I think it's really important and it really touched me. So I'm glad to brought it up and you shared it, shared your experience. You didn't have to do that. And thank you so much. Okay. Let's do the final one before we wrap. And then I want you to tell people where they can find all of your work and how they can stay connected to you, because I know I'm going to, I've just, I, you know, dug deep and really enjoyed and appreciated everything that you've done thus far. Let's do, uh, I'm going to, need some help on the name, but Welcome Home Jihad. Uh, Welcome Home Jaiji. Um, Jaiji. So that is a film that's in production. And it's a film that's, uh, it's shifting as we speak. Uh, I'm still figuring it out. But uh, what happened was I was filming, there was this street in, in downtown Berkeley that needed to be renamed. Um, it was, there was like a Shattuck Avenue East and a Shattuck Avenue West. And they wanted, there was like a wayfinding issue apparently, and they had to rename it. And so the, the city of Berkeley came up with this idea to put it out into the community, you know, get some suggestions for names and a group of South Asian activists, several of whom I know and have a connection with, were supporting the name Kalabagai and Kalabagai Way. And so I kind of followed along. I followed along. I was just filming them campaigning for this name. And Kala is a South Asian woman who never lived in Berkeley, actually, um, because she was barred from entering her home that she and her husband had purchased. And they were physically barred by... Uh, the details are a little fuzzy because there's some accounts, but it sounds like 
something of a white mob of neighbors that didn't want them to live in their neighborhood and so barred them from entering the property. And so Cullet basically told her husband, this was in the 1920s, I think, you know, like, we don't need to live here. Let's just go somewhere else. And so they never got to live in Berkeley. And so there's a lot about Cullet that makes her kind of special and why she touched so many people today or in the last few years and why her name is now on that street sign. Um, but I think the thing that that's st- sticks with me is that she was kind of, a, she was a community caregiver. She took care of everybody. And I think there's something about the aunties in our community t- that don't get any credit. There's just like this unseen labor that holds us up, that holds movements up. And so she, you know, she hosted gatherings where activists would come together. There was her husband was a member of the Gudder Party, which they were fighting for Indian independence um, here in the Bay Area, but Indian independence. And so there was things that they did. There was things she did. She became, you know, she created this um, wonderful community where she eventually moved to the Southern California. Um, and some people referred to her as Mother India or Jaiji. And so, so Welcome Home Jaiji is about, you know, welcoming her home back to Berkeley and honoring her for who she is and really honoring aunties for who they are um, and for what they do for us. So that's kind of that. I think, so what's shifting about the film, because it's in production, um, but it's earlier in production than Coach Emily, is that I'm, there's, you know, there's the campaign story and then there's Kala's life. Uh, we get to know her. And then the present day story still coming together, but I've been taking a deep look at the activists and the lead organizer, Bernali Ghosh, who worked so tirelessly um, to bring Kala home to Berkeley. And so the way that gets told is to be determined, but we're going to do some filming this summer. Yeah. And so. Man, there is nothing superficial about what you do. And I love it. I love it. I love the authenticity. I love the eye you have for the what story you want to tell and the way in which you tell it. It's really, really amazing. And we met by chance, and I'm just so happy we did. I really am a fan, and we'll be following you hereafter. So please tell people where they can find you, your projects, so we can all do the same. Thank you so much. I It's nice to just take a deep dive into the past and kind of socialize so I figure out, you know, where do I go from here? So thanks for having me. So you can find more information on my website at chandifilms.com. It's C-H-A-N-D-I films.com. Um, and you can watch Escaping Agra there. You can watch a lot of the things we talked about there. But also for Coach Emily, as it's, um, you know, further along, almost complete, I hope, you can learn more about that at coachemilyfilm.com. And, you know, I think, I, there's social media as well. So you can find us on social media at Chendi Films and Coach Emily Film. But for Coach Emily, we're really excited because um, we're part of this thing called Doc Pitch. And it's a pitching competition where five film teams get to basically pre-record and a video and talk about, you know, what they're filming and why they're filming it and what, you know, what they're ho- hoping to get out of it, what they're hoping to offer the world, really. And so we had a chance to record something and it's out in the world right now and voting ends at midnight on May 11th. So if you happen to see this before then, um, <laughs> the link is up at coachemilyfilm.com to support us. And all we need is a vote that we're up for, you know, production files that are game changing and kind of life changing. 
And so, yeah, just hoping for support. But in general, just, yeah, like, please follow us and engage with us and just find me and let's talk about movies and communities and why we do the things we do. I voted and I'm encouraging other people to vote. I've reposted it and shared it with people. So I hope you get what you need. And I look forward to everything that you're doing. And again, this was short notice. Thank you so much for being flexible and coming on and sharing the stories that you tell. They're so important for people to hear. You know, one thing I have been saying about this show is that it may seem like it's for a specific audience, but there's lessons for everyone. And yours today is just a perfect example of that. So again, thank you for your time and coming on and sharing space with me. Thank you so much. Yeah, for sure. Okay, take care and I'll be in touch, okay? Okay. All right. Please be sure to like, subscribe, and follow wherever you get your podcasts. And also leave us a review. Let us know what you think. Thank you for listening to Change the Narrative with J.D. Fuller.